Some of you have already done this, but we're in Exodus chapter 2 this morning. If you were here with us last week, you know that we started a new series looking at the life of Moses for our summer months together. Uh, the life of Moses, uh, a, a life of trust, which is to say, what do we learn about Moses that teaches us to trust God uh, at a deeper and more deeper and more richer level, if you will? What does Moses have to teach us about a life of trust and walk with the Lord? This morning we're going to look at Exodus 2, and we'll do the first uh, 15 verses. When we lived in Mississippi, we uh, took a, an overnight trip to Little Rock. Little Rock was maybe two, two and a half hours away from where we were living at the time, and so we went out there, just the, the four of us, and just a quick little mini vacation, you might say. We stayed downtown Little Rock, which if you've never been there, it's a great place. Uh, there's tons of stuff to do downtown. There's little parks and, and bridges that go over this bridge, walking bridge that goes over this uh, river that they have there. It was just a great time. Um, even rode a little, little trolley bus around part of the, the city there. But one of the highlights, at least for the, the kids, was going to the zoo. And as we uh, grew getting closer and closer to going to the zoo, they began to put together this wish list of animals that they wanted to see at the zoo. And we saw all the ones that you would expect to see or hope to see at a zoo, you know, elephants and, and rhinos, uh, reptiles and snakes. We saw naked moles. I mean, that, I mean, how could you not be excited about seeing naked moles? We saw giraffes, uh, which I had to be the, the kid favorite at the time, seeing these huge giraffes. You could feed them. They would come close to you, and uh, you could feed them. It was a lot of fun uh, doing that. Lions and tigers, monkeys, everything that you would expect to see at, at a zoo. What was amazing to me was it's not the first time they've been to a zoo. It's not like they've, they haven't seen real animals before. I mean, they've seen dogs and cats, but, like, they've seen other animals in person like that before. We've been to the zoo in Jacksonville. We've been to the zoo in, in Nashville. And so they've, they've been around the block, so to speak. They've got zoo experience. Yet going into to this Little Rock Zoo, they were still excited. They still wanted to, to see something new, something that wasn't familiar to them or to learn something new or what have you, they were still excited because they felt like there was something new to learn. Exodus chapter 2 is, is, for many of us, is not a new chapter for us. It's about the birth of Moses. And, and we've heard this story about the, the floating on the Nile and Pharaoh's daughter taking him in and everything that goes up into that story. It's, it's familiar to us. But I would encourage you, and, and it's my hope as we read through this text this morning, that you won't let your familiarity spoil it for you, but you will still look for, for new things to learn about Moses and about this story. And what's the import on your life today as you sit in the pew and we're gathered here this Sunday morning? So as you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 1 through verse 15. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could not hide him no when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. And her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. 
Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Verse 11. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as, a, as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What, did, what I did must have, must, must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. This is God's word. It's absolutely true and given to us in love. Let's pray together. Father God, would you use these words by your spirit? Would you encourage us? Would you point us to the reality of Christ and all that he has done for us? We pray that you administer. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. As a kid, part of my uh, summer vacation, we would go to visit my grandparents. And when your grandfather is an optometrist, you get your eyes examined every summer vacation. And so I can remember going with my sister gets my eyes examined by my grandfather. And he would do, the, I mean, I got the whole, I got the deluxe package, okay? He got everything. And uh, he would dilate our eyes, and I hated having my eyes dilated every time. Because you'd walk out into the bright Georgia sun, and you're just blinded. They give you these little plastic, you know, shades to put on, cardboard shades, and they don't really help. And so I just dreaded a little bit going to get my eyes dilated and doing that. And summer after summer, I would get the thumbs up. Thumbs up. You're doing great. You're doing great. Nothing needs to be corrected. And then came the summer before my college, uh, fr- before my freshman year. Same kind of event. Went in there, business as usual. And he's looking and poking around. What do you see on the board? And read that line. Read that line. And this exam took a little bit longer. And uh, he kind of told me afterwards, it's like, well, the party's over and you're going to have to have glasses. You're going to have to have your, your vision corrected. And so I was like, i got to pick out glasses. I mean, this is the worst. And so picked out the frames that I wanted, got the lenses made, and picked up my prescription. And I remember getting in the car, putting these new glasses on. And I was like, there's leaves on these trees. And there's, there's, there's signs that I can read now. It was like everything. It was like going from black and white to color. You know, that my vision had gotten was so bad and, and so blurry that I just didn't even notice it. It just slowly ebbed that way. And now you put on these corrective lenses and I can just see perfectly. You can see everything in such detail. It was like going to HD, HD TV or something. You know, it was just amazing all the detail. And it, y'all, y'all, some of you have had this experience where you're, you don't realize how bad your vision is until you put on some new corrective lenses, until you put on some glasses or some contacts, and you see how bad it really is. This morning, that can be true of our eyes physically, where we're just not seeing clearly, but it can also be true in our spiritual lives as well, where we think we're seeing God clearly, we think things are going good in our lives spiritually, 
But often God works in our lives and he tweaks things and he changes things. And then it's like, oh, now I see you more clearly. Now I see in greater detail, I see greater reality of, of who you are and what you're doing in my life. And it's my hope that this passage will kind of have that effect on us, that it, it will clear up our spiritual vision, you might say, and give us clarity to see God more clearly in all that he's doing in our midst so that we can trust him more wholeheartedly. And so three things I want us to, to talk about and, and look at from this passage. First is seeing God in the ordinary, and then seeing God in his providence, and then seeing God when we're humbled, or seeing God when we're, we're brought low. So first, seeing God in the ordinary. Uh, observation, you, you read chapter 1 and, and even into chapter 2, and there's nobody spectacular that jumps out off the page. I mean, probably the, the most heroic feat that we've seen so far are the midwives from chapter 1. Uh, Pharaoh's telling them all the baby boys, Hebrew boys, are to be killed. And the midwives, they stand up to that. It's like, no, we're not going to do that. And they're, they're the heroes of the text. But you move into chapter uh, 2 here, and there's a number, another woman that's kind of does something heroic, and, and you see how she's operating by faith, I think, and it's Moses' mother. We don't even get her name. She's just this Levite woman. Later on in Scripture, we learn her name, and we learn who her husband is at the same time, but it's just this woman. And you see in verse 2, she has this child, and she looks at him, and she, she says, she thinks, what a fine child. Now, don't go past that phrase, fine child, because it's the same kind of word, it's the same Hebrew word that God uses about creation in Genesis chapter 1. God looking at creation saying it's good. And so this, Moses' mother is, is looking at this, at this, looking at him and saying, you're good. You're special. God has entrusted me with you, and I want to honor him. I want to serve him. I, I, I want to delight and, and love this child. But she's in a quandary, right? She's in a hard place. It's like she's, what she has is, is illegal, and so she's got to figure out a way. She keeps him for a number of months, then she's like, what am I going to do? And then she places him in this basket, and she puts him by the riverbank down by the Nile where all, there's all this activity and all this traffic, all these women going about doing their business, doing what you do by the river there, puts him in this mini ark, if you will, and sends him away. And they're watching with anticipation what is going to happen in this situation. And Pharaoh's daughter sees the baby, hears the baby, looks at the baby. She knows what's going on. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket science to say this is a baby Hebrew boy, and this is why he's here, because otherwise he'd be drowned. She takes pity on it. And, of course, uh, Moses' sister comes along and he says, Hey, do you want me to find somebody to nurse this baby for you? And she's like, that would be great. And so here's Moses going back uh, to live with his family and, and receiving money uh, to be raised by his mother and nursed by his mother. And, of course, later on he goes and spends time living and growing up in his teen and adult years in Pharaoh's palace. See how God is, is taking this situation and, and, and working it out through these ordinary kind of means. Moses, think about Moses. He's not all that spectacular uh, as a person, as an adult. Uh, he's seeing his, his fellow Hebrews being abused and perhaps wanting to bring about some kind of change by force. He takes this Egyptian and he kills him. He buries him. He thinks nobody will ever see. Nobody will ever know. And, of course, he soon comes 
comes to be discovered by his fellow Hebrews, they kind of turn him in or they turn their backs on him. And then Pharaoh finds out and Moses has got to live this life on the run. He's driven into the wilderness, into the desert, and becomes a shepherd. And he knows how bad and how low he's come now that he's a shepherd. Nobody looks up to shepherd. Egyptians despise shepherds. They think they're just the lowliest class. And yet here is Moses living this life as a shepherd. And yet God uses these types of people, uses these ordinary situations, and he works through it, operating, willing, and working in their presence, working in the ordinary. And what this means for us, if we're going to see God clearly in our lives in such a way that we want to trust him and we want to walk by faith, it means that we have to be aware that he works in the ordinary affairs of my life the day-in, day-out routine, that he's active there, that he is present there, that he's working there. It's not an accident, and and we take those things seriously. Think about it from from Moses as as a case in point and how God raised him up to be the leader that we're going to come and discover that he is. If it wasn't for Pharaoh's edict that all these baby Hebrews are to be killed or to be wiped out, Moses never would have been placed in that basket, never would have been discovered by Pharaoh, and never would have grown up in that palace, never would have received that kind of training, that kind of education, been around those kind of people to to learn and to grow, to one day be a man that's able to lead his people, his fellow Hebrews, his fellow Israelites, out of this superpower. Think about it, God using that, that situation. Or think about Moses himself. This is probably the, the, the worst moment in his life when he's absolutely just, just ruined things for himself, killing this Egyptian and then being forced to, to live on the run. And yet, what does God do? He takes that situation and he turns it around and says, you meant it for ruin upon you. You ruined your life by that, but I'm going to take that around. And he's humbled by it. He's humbled by these, these years and years and years and years of being a shepherd out in the desert, out in the wilderness, Numbers tells us that Moses is, one of the, is the meekest person in the world. What a title. What, what a, a thing to have developed in your life because of that situation, because of how he ruined his life, but God turned it around and used it uh, to deepen his life. The point is, when you give your life to God, there's nothing that you can do that can ruin it. Some of you are in circumstances or in situations where you have regret. You wish you made better decisions. You wish you did this. You wish you did that. But when you give your life to God, he can use that to shape you and to mold you and and to work it for his will and his purposes in a way that glorifies him. That nobody is beyond God's reach. Nobody is beyond God's redemption and and time for change and to, to be used by him to minister to others and to grow and find life and joy in him. And he does that through our ordinary situations when we give our lives to him. The second thing is seeing God in his providence. Seeing God in his providence. You look at verses 1 and 2. It says, a Levite woman marries a Levite man. It happens all the time at that time. We don't know their names. Of course, we know their names later on. These are Moses' parents, and we get their names later on. But they get married, and they have this baby boy. Just completely ordinary situation. Yet God, you see his fingerprints are all over this passage. 
We don't know Moses' parents' name. We don't know the name of the mother or the wife. We don't know the name of the father or the husband. The only proper name we know of is Moses. That's the only name we get in this chapter. And while God's name is not written here, we don't hear him speaking, we don't hear him declaring, we don't hear him giving orders and and changing things, his fingerprints, his hands are all over this passage. I mean, you can't help but read this passage and think God has, how he has orchestrated all of these things for himself and according to his plan to rescue and to save his people. I mean, after all, think about, and all this is taking place under the king's edict of wiping out these, all these baby Hebrew boys. I mean, the fact that, that, that Moses is placed in this basket and rescued by Pharaoh's daughter, it's, it's an amazing thing to behold, and you cannot help but see God's fingerprints all over it. But there's other hints of God's activity when you think about what's happening here and compare it to some of the other incidents in the scriptures as a whole. For example, think about the birth of Moses is not an ordinary birth. Think about it in comparison to Noah. And I think the author is intentionally saying, drawing to, to, to have a little bit of an echo of what happened in the life of Noah. That, that word that, that Moses has placed in this basket, it's a word for ark. It's this section here, and in Noah's section, we talked about the ark in Genesis. It's the only two places that those words are used. And so as readers, we have to go back to that story. How is Noah saved from being in an ark? How is Moses saved by being placed in this mini ark? So you hear these, these God's fingerprints over this passage. The life of Moses should sound familiar to us as we think about the circumstances that surrounded his birth and the circumstances that surrounded his birth, the birth of Christ. Think about this. Christ was born under the threat of what? Of genocide. He was born underneath that threat of genocide. What was Moses born under? He was born underneath this threat of genocide as well. Before Jesus starts his public ministry, where is he? He's out in the wilderness. Before Moses starts his public ministry, where is he? Before he starts leading his people out of slavery, where is he? He's in the wilderness. He's in the desert. And we see these similar uh, patterns in the life of Christ that we see here in the life of Moses. It's meant to say God's fingerprints are all over this passage. He may not be mentioned specifically, but we know that he's working. And we know he's working by his providence. And it's a picture of how God cares for his people in the ordinary circumstances of their life and even doing extraordinary things out of the ordinary things that they face. Think about the times in your life where you feel like you've, you've known God's special care of providence in your life. I can remember living in Florida with my wife before we had kids, and we got the incredible experience of, of experiencing our first hurricane together. And so it's like the, the joy of collecting bottled water and can and, and bread and, and peanut butter and jelly that we're never going to eat, even if things got really bad, collecting all this stuff and taping up windows and being reminded, don't park your car underneath a tree when there's a hurricane coming. So looking out in the parking lot, we see, well, you know, my car is parked underneath the tree. Maybe we should move it. I go and move the car. Twenty minutes later, I look out the window. That same tree is just has been jacked over on the car that happened to be parked there. God's sparing all this damage to our car. It's God's providence working. I can remember living in Mississippi, and these friends of ours uh, were driving through town, 
and uh, they spontaneously stopped by the church and said, hey, we're in town, and we're driving through. Let's go grab lunch together. We go and grab lunch together there at the local restaurant and catch up and all that's going on in, in the church and each one of our, in our lives. And it was like, all right, we'll drop you off back at church, and we've got to be on our way. And so we're driving back to the church so they could drop me off, and we approach this intersection, and we're about to go through this intersection. We've got the green light, and this car in front of us suddenly takes a left turn, a sharp left turn, and just cuts right in front of us. We, all, we, were, we had to be like inches from nailing this car from this huge collision at this intersection. It could have been really bad. But in God's providence, he was able to slam on those brakes. You think about those instances in your life, you feel like God just protected you. Or if you did this or you did that, God was watching over. God was working and doing something. But here's the thing about God's providence. Here's the point of God's providence. The point of God's providence and seeing God's providence and seeing his fingerprints over this passage is so that it would deepen our faith. So that we would trust him. That we would take steps of faith. That we would be a people of action because we know that he is a God of providence. Again, go back to Moses' parents. We don't know the content of their spiritual lives. We don't know the, the insights into their spiritual lives. We're just not told. But when you get to Hebrews chapter 11, they are celebrated as people of faith. Putting that baby in that mini ark and sending him out like that, they were trusting in God. They were trusting in his providence. They were able to take action because they believed in God, because they trusted that he was willing, that he was working, and that perhaps he would just work through something ordinary as we step out. Where does your faith need to find action? Where in your life does your faith need to find action? It could be something in your marriage. It could be something in your work life. It could be something here in church. Maybe God is, is prodding you to do this or to do that. Where do you need to find action in the midst of your faith? Because we're people that believe that God is at work. We believe that God's providence is operating in all areas of our lives. And we take, state, we take steps of faith knowing that he'll provide, knowing that he's willing, knowing that he's working. Where do you need to be a person of action? Finally, the last one, seeing God when we're humbled. Seeing God when we're humbled. We didn't read this, but you see the prayer at the end of, of chapter 2 there, and it's a prayer of desperation. It's them praying, God, we are at the end of our rope. God, you've got to rescue us from this slavery. It's overwhelming. We can't get out of it. You, you've got to work by your grace. You've got to work by your power. You've, you've got to rescue us. You've got to do something. They are clearly being brought low. But they are not the only ones who have been brought low by their circumstances. Certainly Moses has been humbled as he's living out his adult life, the beginning of his adult life, as a shepherd out in the wilderness. He grew up as a bystander, watching his fellow Hebrews enslaved, watching them suffer, watching them go through all of this difficulty. He saw it, he experienced it, but it was the experience of a bystander. But once he set out and he killed that man, and he became discovered, and he chose to side with his people and be aligned with his people, he knew what it was like to suffer. He knew what it was like to be on the bad side of the Egyptian pharaoh. He knew about difficulty. And he knew what it's like to be a nobody as a shepherd out in the wilderness, driven away from where he'd grown up, driven away from the familiar into the unfamiliar. But all of that 
changed Pharaoh, changed Moses. When he was brought low, he's brought into a deeper experience of God's grace and God's love and God's life and God's promises. And we're going to see that played out in the chapters ahead of us. But God brought him to that place of humility, of being brought low, because that's where grace begins. That's where grace starts in our lives, when we humble ourselves. And when we're brought low, we see our need for him. Are you at the end of your rope? Are you, are you, if you want to see God's grace work in your life, you want to see a deeper experience of him, you've got to come to that point where it's like, God, I need you. I need you in a desperate and real way. There's nothing more significant than finding you and knowing you. Commentator Peter Eanes tells this story, and I'll, I'll close with this, and we'll, we'll pray for a moment. He had a college friend who uh, played baseball, and he was a good baseball player, good enough to, to get the attention of scouts, of major league scouts, to become and, and watch him and take notes on him and get invited to do some tryouts and participate in some tryouts once he graduated. So he graduated but right at graduation, he hurt his elbow. He hurt his elbow in a, in a pretty bad way. He went through the tryouts. He went through the motions of the tryouts, so to speak. But he just didn't have it. He just didn't have the, the skill that he normally has because his elbow was injured. And this was a big deal to him. He'd grown up always wanting to play major league ball. I mean, at week in and week out of practice and practice and summers after summers, and game after game, wanting to, this opportunity to try out and be a part of a, a major league baseball team. But it happened to be at the moment when he hurt his elbow and he couldn't do what he knew he could do. And for a couple of years, Eans' friend was like, God, why did you do that? Why did I have to get hurt at that time, at that moment? Why can't I be hurt like my freshman year or my junior year? Why did it have to be after I graduated when I'm going through these trials, when I needed to be at my best? Why did that have to happen? But God used that being brought low to bring him into a deeper walk with him. Eames would love to say, you know what? He got over that injury and he became the next Nolan Ryan, but it never happened. Eames would love to say, you know, my friend, he... He got away from baseball, and he saw who God was, and, and he discovered this new ministry, and he became the next Billy Graham, but that didn't happen either. Eames' friend just went on with life. He got married. He had kids, got a good job, lives in the suburbs. But that moment in his life brought him to a deeper walk with the Lord. It was frustrating. It was difficult. He spent years of questioning God, but being brought low like that, being humbled by that brought about the door opening where he could experience a rich, a richness of God's grace in his life. Some of you are probably feeling like you're being brought low. Stuff that's going on in your life, in your circumstances, you can't take it. It's too difficult. You wonder where, it's, where things are going to end up. But maybe God has brought you low so that you can know more of his grace so that you can know more of his power. So you could be like us, going back and, and reading over your, the circumstances of your life, and you begin to see the fingerprints of God. Those things that felt so devastating for you at that moment, you look back at them now and you're thankful. Because without those things, without being brought low, you never would have known his grace. You never would have known his sufficiency. You never would have this joy and security and true rest. Let's pray and ask God would do that in our lives. Father God, we pray that you would give us eyes 
to see. Father, we walk about with eyes that are blurry and dim, and we think we see fine. We think we, we, we can get along fine. But, Father God, we need you to correct. We need you to work. Sometimes you do that through the ordinary. Sometimes you do that by us allowing us to see your hand of providence. Sometimes you do that by just bringing us low. Regardless, we pray that we would see more of you clearly, that you would help us to be a church, to be a people who trust you, who are known for our trust in you, who model trust to our peers. Father God, we pray that you would help us to be a church of action, to be a people of action. Give us things that we can be doing to move out in faith because we know that you're a God of providence. Father, thank you for giving us Christ. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your unending love for us. We ask all this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.